there, Green Future Growers. Thanks for joining us today. If you're new to the show, I hope you'll subscribe on iTunes or your favorite Android app. And let's get growing. Get your copy of the Organic Oasis Guidebook available today from Amazon for just $26.95. And it's got 12 lessons designed to help you create your own Organic Oasis um, it starts with healthy soil. It talks about building an earth-friendly landscape. It helps you understand the difference between annuals and perennials and how to bring in beneficial insects. It talks about fruit trees and just um, all the lessons that I've learned on my podcast mixed with what Mike and I have done here. Okay, what Mike has done here at Mike's Green Garden and just um, I hope that it will help you on your garden journey uh, to create, like I said, your own organic oasis um, where you can have healthy food and enjoy, um, you know, a very special place. And most of all, it's good for Mother Earth. Never, um, yeah, always looking for gas. So I was super excited. There, but there. then also, you're like, you're an environmentalist and you're the same age as my husband and you work for the Park Service and the Forest Service. And wait, what was the other things? Anyway, I always like to tell my guests at the beginning of our call, like, it's super easy to edit the podcast. So, like, if you need to get a drink, if you want to change an answer, if you want to think about something, if you want to, you know, need to let the dog out, like, don't hesitate to put me on hold. It's super easy to edit. Who <laughs> let the dog out? Well, I do I do radio shows. I do TV shows. So I'm used to doing one-and-done one takes. So I've got to get it right the first time. So I don't think we'll have too much problem with that, hopefully. But I appreciate letting me know. All right. Well, yeah, I'm not there in any way, shape, or form yet. <laughs> like, that's funny you said that because AJ was like, put it out raw, put it out raw. And I put our interview out raw and it was like, you could totally hear me typing in the background or something. Like it was like, it needed editing. And so then for the next 24 hours, I was just like, I got to get this edited and fixed. <laughs> so sure. I don't well, put, um, I try not to put things out raw too often sure. i've been having sound problems this year ever since uh january 2018 i've been having uh sound problems that i don't know between my mic really? and i think oh. I, I had to get a new mic and i think this new mic even though it's the exact same mic just picks up sound more um oh yeah yeah it depends on the design on the pickup and so uh yeah i don't know yeah. i don't do much i just have my headphones plugged into my computer and then I thought you it was like are. my headphone mic was picking up, but I now I'm using headphones that don't have a mic on them, and it's still kind of a hassle. Well, I, I know there are mics that are directional, and then there are mics that have a broad area of pickup, and you can get a lot of spurious outside noise from those. Yeah, I don't know. So, uh, anyway, my show, on the flip side, my listeners don't want to hear from me. They want to hear from you, and I'll respect your time. So, I'll just, uh, do you have any questions for me, or should I just introduce you, and we'll go from there? Well, I, my main question here okay. is, I, you know, I filled out the questionnaire to the best of yeah, my ability. but I do remember you having a question there. Your, your, your program is more, well, at least, I guess, theoretically, you're more oriented towards food gardening and what I uh, do is not re really food gardening. It's more, it's ecological restoration in people's backyards. So that's really what we focus on is ecological restoration through individual gardens. 
Yeah, I mean, I guess those questions may seem towards food, but like my husband, and I just wrote a book called the Organic Oasis Guidebook. And so like one of my interviews I did with my brother, like they don't really grow any food. They have like a peach tree, they grow some herbs, but that's a super popular episode. Like just talking about like building your landscape, like anything related to um, treating a earth-friendly environment and something where people don't have to sure. spray chemicals and that like the biggest key to my show has been like healthy soil and just talking about the whole, I call my listeners green future growers because I feel like we're all committed to growing a greener future and teaching our neighbors and starting right. businesses and what now? Sorry, I gotta grab my phone. Yeah. Oh my gosh. So sorry. Okay, that should not go off again. I I had this, I had to get a new phone. I got my old phone fixed yesterday and like last year I was teaching full time and I think there's twenty seven alarms that go off between seven thirty and like four o'clock in the afternoon because that's how many transitions we had. And oh it God. like sat at the store where you know I got it fixed, and it probably and they all play mm -hmm. different songs because like for lunch it's like from Toy Story, and for like the beginning of the day it's like the Blackfeet flag song, and like every and probably they probably had to shut that thing off twenty times yesterday before I went to pick mm -hmm. it up. <laughs> and then my wow. husband, it was just going off this morning. I thought I caught them all, but I guess I didn't. Well, yeah, school well, is crazy. My... That's, so that's one of the things that I saw that I think we have, like, we're both kind of that entrepreneurial, um, you know, personality. Yeah, yeah. So okay, I think that's, I'll you know, that's, you. that's a big part. But what I like, the things I want to focus on here, which I think are completely consistent with, with your podcast goals and values, is number one, looking at gardening from a completely different perspective than the anthropocentric. And that means like uh, kind of like looking at it from a person's point of view. Is that what anthropocentric? Like I remember yes, that from like yes. early college. Yes. Yes. The okay. gardens are focused on really the, the needs, desires of humans only. And the kind of gardening we do is life gardening for all forms of plants, animals, critters, bugs, etc. And the whole purpose here is to provide a sustainable ecosystem on people's properties. And the real importance of native plants is that they have co-evolved with so many other creatures that they're inextricably linked to one another, as opposed to non-native plants, which when they're brought to another land or another place where they don't have those long periods of co-evolution and adaptation, they support very few insects and other invertebrates, which are the foundation of the food chain. So they have, they, they have very limited value ecologically. And that's why you asked what resource uh, I thought was important. I, that's why I listed Doug Tallamy's book, Bringing Nature Home. And I can think of nothing more valuable for people to read than that book. And that was one of the uh, answers to your questions. So, um, and then the other thing is, to get the chemicals out of the environment, native plants are great because, number one, you don't have to fertilize them as long as you pick the right plants for the right situation. And you don't have all the maintenance associated with it. And as opposed to a lawn, you're not spending all those petrochemicals on gasoline and just building the equipment that goes into the energy that goes into building lawnmowers, steel, et cetera, plastic. 
And perhaps most important, and this is the real crux of this matter, is that if I don't see holes in the leaves of my plants, I'm a failure as a gardener. And this is the real difference in gardening. People are trying to prevent their plants from being eaten. I encourage my plants to be eaten because that means insects are eating them and then insects are feeding the birds and other critters. So I have an ecosystem in my yard and that's super important. Uh, did you say insects that, are eating the birds? Did you mean to say birds no, are eating the insects? Did I say insects eating birds? I meant to say I birds are eating insects. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the insects eat the plants, the birds eat the insects, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, yes, and so you're creating a food chain, a food web in your garden. And that's really the bottom line. And so we're no longer just gardening for human interest and for human returns, but we're gardening for all forms of life and we're sharing our garden with all forms of life that support the planet. And that's revolutionary. That's really a revolutionary concept compared to traditional gardening for the last X thousand years. Uh, well, do you want to talk about, I always start my show asking about your very first gardening experience. Like, were you a kid? <laughs> were you an adult? Who were you with? Like, what did you grow? Were you growing native plants? Like, tell us about no. that. No. Well, I started out in first grade with my first garden and it was because we had some school project that we were raising money for. And the way we were raising money was selling garden seeds door to door in our neighborhood. So everybody got a whole bunch of packs of seeds and we were supposed to go out and sell them and bring the money back so we could fund whatever this activity was. And this will tell you how old I am. The packets were only 10 cents each. And I remember <laughs> going to my neighbors and selling them these seeds I'm thinking, well, what am I selling? I have to know my product. So I said, oh, I'll start a garden in my backyard in St. Louis in an urban neighborhood with compacted clay soil that had been trampled by kids for 50 years. And so I dug some up and planted the seeds, and I had the most pathetic garden you ever saw in your life. Uh, the corn plants got like two feet tall and had these stunted little ears on them. Nothing grew. It was, it was horrible. It was just a travesty. So that was the end of my gardening career for 10 years. And then I must have read Organic Gardening Magazine or something. I got some crazy idea that I was going to have a garden again. But I knew now that gardening in compacted clay was a fool's errand that I was going to do this differently. So I employed the old English method of double digging the garden where I took the soil out, the clay, two spade lengths deep. So it was about 18 inches deep. And piled this big pile of clay in the yard. And then they took all the leaves because we always collected our leaves and put them in a compost pile, but we never did anything with them. We just had this recycling compost pile of leaves that did nothing. So I put all those into the garden. Well, it barely made a dent in that big hole. So I started collecting leaves from the gutters and from my neighbors and got all And I put like a foot of leaves and then an inch or two of clay and a foot of leaves and an inch or two of clay and made this little, well, at that time, funny called it that, a lasagna sandwich garden until I had a three foot tall mass grave as my parents referred to it. Now this is in the fall and I'm planning for the future for spring and here I have a giant mound in the backyard really not knowing what the hell I was doing. Well fortunately over winter it all settled down because of the leaves decaying and compressing and so now my mass grave was only about a foot and a half tall in the spring. So I went out and planted my tomatoes and 
greens and stuff. And it was the most unbelievable, incredible garden you ever wanted to see in your life. They went crazy. And we had more food. And suddenly I was a genius. And we used that garden for years and years and years, even after I went away to college. My parents still planted that garden year in and year out. So that was my first successful garden activity. I love that. That's like, uh, I don't know, like you built your own like deep beds just right there, just like kind of piling it up and just like creating a composted deep bed. It's a lot of like what people are talking about today with the whole no-till movement. Uh, yeah. Well, so then tell us about like in your, because um, you sent me your amazing CV and it like talks about 34 years experience in research, design, and installation of native plant communities for prairies, wetlands, savannas, and woodlands. And you design native landscapes and for highways, county parks, golf courses, commercial facilities, people's estates and universities. And like you develop seed mixes, like tell us about all those awesome things. Well, when I went into business, it's actually been 37 years. I should have updated that CV. I went into business in 1982. And why did I go into business? For a number of different reasons. I had worked for the U.S. Park Service in Virginia and the Forest Service in Colorado and for the University of Wisconsin here in Wisconsin, where I live now. And these were, you know, limited term employment jobs for six months or eight months or whatever. And it was all great work. I loved it. But it really wasn't for me. I just wasn't a public sector person because there was a lot of bureaucracy and stuff you just couldn't do. So I was looking for my own way. And then the recession of 1981, 82 hit. And suddenly there weren't any jobs anywhere. So when you when you can't find a job, what do you do? You create your own. So um, I actually had purchased seeds from this little place called Prairie Nursery, which was a backyard garden run by a retired individual in central Wisconsin. And I heard through the grapevine that he was retiring at age 68. And a buddy and I lived on a, an old farmhouse on a small farmette in outside of Green Bay, Wisconsin. And the owner said it was okay if we were to use that land as long as we rented the house. So I called up Bob Smith, who ran this little prairie nursery place, and said, Bob, I hear you're retiring. Can I buy your plants and move them up here and move your nursery up here? And he said, well, I suppose, but why don't you just come down here and run it? <laughs> Like, where the hell is Westfield, Wisconsin? So I went down, looked at it, and said, what the heck? Why not? I bought a trailer, this cheap old trailer, and two guys living in a trailer growing wildflowers. So you can imagine what the neighbors had to say in a small rural community. But uh, So we started doing that. <laughs> yeah, back then it was a little bit different than in 2019. <laughs> oh, yeah. We were the talk of the town. They didn't know that we had girlfriends, but it didn't matter. We, don't. we just let them go on with all that stuff. It was more fun that way. But... At any rate, so it was an extremely um, bare-bones existence because in 1982, native plants were all still weeds. So we couldn't give this stuff away. Literally, nobody wanted it. And my friends were like, Neil, grow some daylilies or hostas or irises. How many people will buy? And I said, no, I'm not interested in that. I'm doing ecological restoration with native plants. This is the future. I firmly believe this is the future. The problem was the future hadn't caught up yet, and it wasn't going to catch up for a while. So it was a very bare bones, very difficult life. And, and I'm working like 90, 100 hours a week in the soil and heat. And it's just like, my God, I went to college for this? Oh, Lord. But slowly but surely, it built. And when we had our first color catalog in 1986, our sales doubled. And suddenly there was hope. And so it took four years to get to that point. And then sales started to pick up and they've been growing ever since. 
So it's been a it's been an interesting journey. It's been a lot of tough rows to hold, as they say. But when you're a little bit ahead of the curve, it's a really hard way to start out. But a lot of things all came together, and there's very good reasons why native plants make sense. What I call the four E's. The first right. is if you if you accept Webster's second spelling of aesthetics without the A. We have some beautiful plants, beautiful flowers, beautiful grasses, and all sorts of wonderful native plants, including trees and shrubs. We, we only grow flowers, grasses, and shrubs, not trees. But there's all these fabulous plants. The second is the environment. You don't need all these chemicals. You don't need all these pesticides, herbicides, fungicides. You can get rid of that stuff. And you don't have to use all these energy sources for gasoline, oil, et cetera, for mowing lawns, and so on and so forth. And you have deep-rooted plants that help increase infiltration of water into the ground, uh, water table into the ground. So rather than running off, you have a a much more closed-loop system that recycles the water naturally into the groundwater. And you also have um, strips where if you do have areas where fertilizer is being applied, if you have native prairie grasses with deep roots adjacent to them, that uh, fertilizer water can, precipitate water can run into them and filter out those chemicals. So there's a number of different environmental reasons, ecological reasons to this. The third is energy. You use a lot less energy because you're not mowing a lawn every seven to 10 days. You've got a nice, beautiful prairie and you might mow it once a year. You might burn it every other year, but you're not spending a lot of time and money and energy on management. Finally, the fourth E is economics. We can save you a lot of money because you're not spending all that money and time on maintenance. So those are the four E's. And there's a fifth E that a lot of people may ignore because our society does not place a great value on it, but that's the emotional connection to the earth. And we have a lot of customers who say that they're putting, planting their prairie on the native plant garden was one of the best things they ever did psychically because it helped reconnect them with the whole ecosystem. So Neil, do you want to give us some tips about if we want to go do this? Cause I feel like, one of the biggest barriers people have is like finding information, finding the plants, knowing where to start, knowing what is a native plant, like that daylilies and irises aren't necessarily native plants. Like, want to talk there about are some, it? sure, absolutely. There are some native irises, but there are a lot of like German iris, bearded iris, et cetera, that are not. So the first thing to do, if you're just getting started with native plants, I would suggest that you avail yourself of all these wonderful resources that are on the internet. And many states have their own native plant societies and you'll get to meet some wonderful people who are totally into native plants. But if you don't want to be involved in that, there are websites uh, like most states will have a website through through a university that will list native plants. uh, Illinois has a great site called Illinois Wildflowers and they also have trees and shrubs. Um, There's another website called the Prairie Ecologist and this is an individual who puts out phenomenal information and observations on his prairie. And there's just uh, unlimited resources out there for people who want to search. And then get your own wildflower book and go out to nature preserves where there have been preserved native plants and learn the plants on your own. And it's really the best way. I mean, I took a course in botany in college, but it, that's just a start. It gives you the basics. But you really need to go out and just spend the time with the plants and get to know the plants. And that's part of the fun. You get to see the plants and you see them throughout their growing season. So you see them when they're coming up. You see them when they're blooming. You see them when they're making seeds. You see them when the butterflies are on them or the 
whatever other pollinators are on them. So that's really, a, to me, that's the best way to get to know your plants. There's also a ton of information on our website at prairienursery.com where we provide people with information on site preparation, planting methods, planting timing, post-planting maintenance, a whole wide variety of different seed mixes, et cetera. Now, our plants are for the prairie, which is basically a Midwestern ecosystem. We have a lot of woodland plants that are Midwestern and also the eastern United States. But people who live in different parts of the country have completely different plants from us, and so they need to look at, at their local flora. Like, you wouldn't really want to use our stuff in Arizona or Southern California. So there's all sorts of other wonderful plants that grow in the desert or grow in the high mountains or wherever you live. So you need to do the research and find out what the best plants are for your area. Again, start with the university, start with the lab, and see what you can find out there. That was excellent. And I was going to say your website because you share tons of information. Like, I think it was a blog post that you shared uh, on Facebook is how we found you or is how AJ found you. And then I found, I shared his post. So there's just so much, yeah, there's so much information out there. It's, it's a great resource. Uh, do you want to talk about like pollinators and planning for pollinators? Cause that's something my listeners ask a lot about how to attract pollinators to their yards. Oh, you bet. And, you know, it goes beyond pollinators. Pollinators, of course, are extremely important. 33% of the food we eat as human beings require pollinators in order to form the fruits, berries, etc. So we have a vested interest in maintaining, supporting habitat for pollinators. Case in point, uh, Wisconsin is the, state, is the country's largest producer of cranberries by far. And what they do is they basically drain these marshes and create these cranberry beds. And they plant cranberries in them. Well, what they're finding is in order to maintain good pollinator populations for the three weeks that they need pollinating of their cranberries, many other farmers are starting to plant strips of prairie that will hold the pollinators throughout the growing season so they'll be available when they need them to pollinate cranberries in summer. So that's just a, a vested interest aspect of why humans need pollinators. But the whole food chain is dependent upon insects, not just pollinators, but all sorts of insects. And there's been these long, long standing relationships of, through coevolution over millions of years between native flora and native fauna. So, interestingly, most plants use chemical warfare to ward off plants from eating them. So, every set of plants has its own chemical compounds that are distasteful to most insects that would eat their leaves. And many pollinators use plants as their food sources in the larval stage. So plants have, excuse me, insects have adapted to overcome the toxins in the plant leaves. And of course, the classic example is the monarch butterfly eating the toxic leaves of the milkweed family. So you have these very close relationships that have developed over thousands or millions of years between native insects and native plants. And that's why when people bring in non-native plants, very rarely do you have the, the depth of relationships between the insects and other plant, other critters that utilize native plants, it's not there. And so the non-native plants do not provide food, they do not provide sustenance, and they do not support populations of pollinators and other invertebrates. So that's why native plants are so important. And I want to uh, stress to people, if you're just learning about the relationship between native plants and native insects and pollinators, the best book you can read is called Bringing Nature 
home by Douglas Tallamy. Douglas Tallamy is an entomologist at the University of Delaware, and he did groundbreaking research on the close relationships between native plants and native insects. And this is super important research, and it's really readable. It's a fantastic book. He's done such a great service to all gardeners by producing this book and really explaining why native plants are so important. Awesome. Well, I always tell my listeners, too, when you get a book, make sure you leave them a good review so other people can find it. Because that does sound like a, a great book. So, and it's funny because AJ just sent me a Facebook message yesterday saying he had just planted a pollinator border. <laughs> so that's cool. Because I talked about those last summer. I went to the Brooklyn Grange, which is like the biggest... Oh, sorry the biggest um, farm on the roof in New York city or one of them or yeah. one of the first. And they had like this pollinator border. And I've just been talking about it a lot ever since I went there. Cause it was just so pretty. And it just like goes around their farm. And it's just full of like snapdragons and I don't know, tons of cool flowers like uh, Rubecchia and sunflowers and zinnias and cosmos and just, um, tons of herbs and you know lavenders and those purple spiky things and uh <laughs> <laughs> you know you you can take this to another level too as an organic gardener okay and let's hear about that beyond just attracting pollinators which are super important for all life including our gardens and the pollination of our vegetables fruit trees etc you also have biocontrol mechanisms that are supported by many native plants. Here's a case in point. There's a plant called Rattlesnake Master, Eryngium yuccafolium. It has foliage like the yucca plant, but it's actually in the carrot umbelliferae family. And this plant is pollinated primarily by wasps. Now, a lot of people would say, ooh, I don't want a plant pollinated by wasps, but a very high percentage of the wasps that come to this plant are parasitic wasps. And these are one of the most underappreciated groups of insects on the planet. And what do these parasitic wasps do? First of all, most of them are very small and they tend to have very specific relationships with other invertebrates. There is a parasitic wasp that attacks just about every other insect, spider, tick, mite, every other little creature that creeps or crawls or flies around on the earth. It's a war out there nasty game. And so here are all these different parasitic wasps that will come to the flowers of the rattlesnake master. And there are other plants as well that offer this, but the rattlesnake master is particularly notable. I think I peonies are one of those plants that are around here that grow, which is really nice. They grow like outside of our deer fence and the deer don't seem to eat them. And I think they attract a parasitic wasp that's good for the garden. Cool. I'm I'm not a big peony guy. I'm a native plant guy, but yeah, there's a number of plants that will do this. But here's what's so cool about this. I had a customer who had a vegetable garden and he had never ending problems with tomato hornworms every year on his tomatoes. And he planted just a quarter pound of one of our seed mixes, which covers a thousand square feet. And that seed mix had rattlesnake master in it. And it takes three years usually for the perennial seeds to mature and begin blooming. And the year that they started blooming, he called me and he said, you know what, Neil, I have no tomato hornworms this year. What's going on? And I said, well, is your rattlesnake master blooming? And he said, yeah, it's doing great. I said, well, the rattlesnake master attracts parasitic wasps, and there's a parasitic wasp 
that attacks the tomato hornworm and lays its eggs on the back of the larva. The eggs hatch and burrow into the tomato hornworm larva and eat it from the inside out and kill it. You don't think that alien movie just came out of somebody's brain. They're just copying nature. <laughs> literally, literally eats the larva from the inside out and then they exit, pupate, and then you have adult wasps that then lay eggs and start the whole cycle over. So he says, my prairie is my insecticide. And he didn't have to spray anything or deal with it. So because he's maintaining the balance in the garden, and that's what they're doing on the rooftop garden. That's what a lot of organic gardeners are doing. Obviously, many of your listeners organic gardeners know all about this. But this is a new concept for a lot of people. And here's a way that you can use non-chemical methods using nature to help control the pests in your garden. Well, my listeners know I love all this. I know that you um, are answering questions that I get a lot. Like, what do I do about, you know, pests in my tomatoes and um, and other places in my garden? So I'm sure people are going to be super excited about this. And I have had a couple of people talk about this before, but like nobody, I don't remember anybody like specifically going into that kind of detail about helping tomato hornworms. So I think that's going to be, I think people are going to be like Googling, where do I get this rattlesnake <laughs> thing? Or what is the, the rattlesnake plant in my area? Rattlesnake master. Yes, and there are many other plants that, that do this as well. And I should, I should stress that you don't want to focus on just one plant. The whole concept of the landscaping that we do and the design that we do and the, the very... The, the whole core of our style of landscaping is biodiversity. What we're trying to do is preserve and spread the biodiversity of our native plants. And by having a diverse array of different flowers, grasses, whatever, whatever's in that ecosystem, shrubs, trees, you are now setting the stage to support all these different creatures that make life possible. So the more trees, the more, more native trees, the more native shrubs, more native flowers, more native grasses you have, the more biodiversity you can have, the more beneficial and not necessarily beneficial. You know, there's good and bad out there, but you're going to have a wide array of critters and you will maintain a balance. And that's really the trick, maintaining the balance of nature naturally. And as everybody knows, when you start spraying pesticides, insecticides, you're killing the good guys and the bad guys. I mean, the first thing I tell my customers is get rid of all your insecticides. Never use them again. Recycle them, take them to a disposal site, get them out. Don't even have them around because you're not going to need them and you don't want them because they're going to kill the good guys as well as the bad guys. And the other thing here, and this is the truly revolutionary part of what we do and what native gardeners do, is in my prairies, in my native gardens, if I don't see holes in the leaves of my plants, I'm a failure as a gardener. Now, people think of a garden as a, a construct for people only, for our own benefit and enjoyment. But what we're doing is we're creating gardens for all forms of life, biodiversity, restoration, creating habitat, creating a sanctuary for all sorts of life upon which we ultimately depend. So if I'm not feeding the insects and the bugs and I don't have holes in the leaves of my plants, I am a complete failure as an ecological gardener. So I want to see those holes. I want to see the plants getting eaten because then I know I'm doing something good. I'm feeding my neighborhood. Well, that's interesting because like just last year, I was thinking that 
what am I going to do if I want to take this kale or this Swiss chard to market? Because I'll eat the stuff with the holes in it, but a lot of other people aren't going <laughs> to eat it. But, I mean, like you said, we're not really talking about food as much as landscaping and things. Uh, well, you know, have you seen this latest study that came out a few months ago? Mm-mm. about the fail, the failure of uh, sales of blemished fruits and vegetables in supermarkets. And there's been an attempt to sell perfectly good food that might have a little scab or something on it or rust, perfectly good food, but it's not perfect. It's not perfect in, in its appearance. And so a number of leading chains had their blemished fruit and vegetable section and people just are resistant to buy it, and it hasn't really worked out. And some of them actually have discontinued them. So I don't know if it's a function of people just not understanding it, or if people just want the perfect-looking food. Uh, and then, but look at the amount of waste. There's, what, I don't know the numbers, uh, but there's huge waste in the agricultural sector of blemished food that never even makes it to market. It just gets thrown away. seen an increase in the number of food waste commercials I feel like on TV uh well the one thing about that that drives me the most crazy is like then those supermarkets don't even compost it like at least like you know what if they if they can't get sell that blemished food um which I can understand I don't know we always have like used bananas are always big for sale around here I see those I haven't ever seen other kind of used bins but i would just think it's probably has a lot to do with cost like people probably don't want to pay for i don't know i haven't seen any i know used bananas sell around here for like you know 20 or 30 cents less a pound or half price there's always bananas um you know older bananas but maybe uh you know a lot of it i'm sure is education because I am just shocked every time I walk into like Home Depot or Lowe's or any kind of gardening section. The very first thing that hits me is these giant roundup weed and feed displays right smack in my face. I'm like, I can't believe this is the very first thing with all these bottles of here, spray this on your lawn. Weed killer. Right. At the I mean, entrance the to the smell. gardening section. Like, I keep taking pictures of them. I don't know what I'm going to do with these pictures, but it's just driving me crazy. And you go into some of these garden centers, and, like, the, the smell just knocks you over from the chemicals. Yeah, I don't like, know how people whoa. walk down that chemical aisle. <laughs> I talked to Jacqueline <laughs> Freeman out. She does, like, treatment-free beekeeping out in Washington, and she said sometimes when she goes to, like, the store and her husband's shopping, she'll, like, kind of hang out in that aisle and just pretend, like, Hmm, I wonder what I could use for this and like start to talk to people and like kind of like not, you know, like just be like, oh, I wonder why should I buy this? And just kind of like pretending to not know what she's talking about <laughs> and engage them in like a conversation and kind of draw them away from the chemical killer. <laughs> oh, wow. But I couldn't yeah. stand there. I, I like, yeah, it totally. I feel like just walking through there, you like smell like that toxic chemicals for like when you get in your car and leave. Yep, and that's the nice thing about native plants is you rarely need to use any chemicals. Now, I, I will say this, that one option that our customers do use to prepare sites is to kill weeds with glyphosate. And you don't have to use that method, but because it is cost-effective and, and relatively easy, many of our customers do that. But there are other ways to do this with tillage, with smother crops, cover crops, et cetera, where you can vanquish the weeds without using herbicides. A lot of people on smaller areas will smother the weeds 
with tarps or cardboard with compost, uh, compost on top of cardboard. And normally that requires a full year, depending on what you're smothering. You can usually kill a bluegrass lawn in a couple of months, but if you have like really bad weeds, uh, perennial weeds, uh, we recommend that people smother them for at least a full growing season from April through October in our part of the world. Um, there are a few weeds that you cannot smother in one year. Rhizomatous deep-rooted weeds like Canada thistle, field bindweed, crown vetch, it may require two years or longer to smother them organically. So these are some of the really tough guys. But for most situations, if you just smother it for a year, you're ready to go. So well, I'm so coming. glad we talked about this because... So I did this interview with Mandy Gerth, and she said that they were following the G. Martin Fortier thing of using the silage tarps. And so I was like, bound and determined, I'm going to get silage tarps this um, spring. And I go on Farmer's Friend website to order them, and I'm like, what? $200, $50 for shipping, $500 for two tarps that I think will do the size of area I want to cover. And so I posted in the Facebook group, I'm like, is this really what I should expect to pay? And I got like all these different answers. But one of the suggestions people said was call like a advertising place that puts up billboards mm. and you can usually get really good deals from them. And so I called this guy yesterday and it did still, I'm not sure whether it was more expensive or less expensive, but he said that the, that they will be like good enough for like a pond. Like you'll never get any weeds back. Um, they're like way stronger than any of the black plastic that you buy. So I, I told Mike, I was like, yeah. well, why don't we try one and we'll try some of the other and see. Um, but the other thing that Mike and I were talking about is we have this meadow that's kind of like covered in like a spotted napweed, which I imagine is similar to Canadian thistle or some of these harder to get rid of things. And like Mike and I were arguing about, I was like, oh, I think that the tarp will cover it and it'll be gone in a month two months at the most. Mm -hmm. And he was like, no, I think it'll be a whole season. And so now after talking to you, which I should know that Mike is always right. Why do I even try to like <laughs> say anything? It probably will take at least a season because like my, what I want to do is like lay the tarps down and get a hemp permit and, and cover and grow hemp down there in our meadow. Cause it, cause like I talked mm -hmm. to, uh, Terry Caton down at the Rodale Institute, and she was saying that hemp is a really good cover crop for um, enriching your soil, which mm, I have always wanted. I feel like this is where you and I are visionaries because, like, I had a hemp company back in like 1993, and like I've been waiting to grow hemp for 16 years, and I'm like, I can buy a permit in Montana. I have to get fingerprinted. I have to pay $450 just to grow my little half acre of hemp or whatever acre of hemp that I really want to grow and try and just to get rid of the spotted napweed, but. We'll see if that happens. Hey, I was ahead of you. I was growing hemp in college. You were? <laughs> well, it wasn't hemp. Oh. It was the real stuff. <laughs> well, that was a long, 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 long time ago. And yeah. I think that's going to come around eventually, oh, too. Definitely. But oh, yeah. They people, say there's like this huge booming, like, since last year, hemp growing like i just can't even believe it like after i talked to her i got back i'm like because like three years ago i couldn't get anybody to talk about growing that for like my uh earth day episode or my oh. 420 episode my first year 2015 and like sure. what is out there today compared to what was out there in 2015 i have just been like blown away at what's going and, on in our country since the farm bill passed yeah. last year well and hemp has been a persecuted crop because it's been associated with marijuana since the war you know, Wisconsin was one of the leading hemp producers in World War II for making rope for the Navy. And as soon as that was, well, then it was made illegal later. 
because people have somehow equated it with marijuana, even though it has almost no active ingredient of THC in it. So it's this great crop for fiber and for oil, all these great products that can be made out of it, but it's been persecuted by guilt by association. And really a guilt that, as far as I'm concerned, is undeserved because we're finally coming to realize that marijuana has some very good medicinal uses. And hey, it's uh, probably safer than alcohol. So there we go. So people are finally coming around to realizing that uh, these products are have a place in society. You know, there's actually a book called Safer, written by, um, it's like a police officer and some other, like, people. And they did, like, it starts out talking about this giant soccer game down, like, World Cup down, like, Brazil or something, where, like, people were really stoned and there were, like, no problems compared to, like, a football game where everybody's drinking. And that's kind of, like, where the story starts out. Like, why, you know, is this... And, like, I'm constantly arguing with people about, like, oh, you can go, you know, have a glass of wine after work, and then you're done for the night. It's just like, you know, what are you going to do after that? Whereas you could go smoke a joint, and then you could go running or keep working or do whatever. But, like, I don't know. I just... And then, you know, like, people keep telling... Like, I don't think alcohol and cannabis together are a good mix. I think that, like, totally intensifies it. But I think that some people, and I don't think it's like, I think certain people react to different things, different ways, and people should just have a choice. But anyway, sure. I don't know how we got on that conversation, but I want, like, uh, you... people are always telling hemp. me I should eat hemp protein <laughs> and I should drink, you know, use hemp salad. Like I love hemp salad oil because they have like those special omegas and because I don't like to eat a lot of meat, they're like, oh, the hemp protein's really good for you. And like my husband's been finding yeah. these research things about how humans as a whole, like one of the reasons we're all so obese and we're struggling to get nutrition in our food is because the animals used to be eating hemp seed. And when you ate like, you know, bacon or hamburgers or whatever, you were getting the hemp seed through the animal because the animal was eating that food. And just, yeah, like you said, there's so many resources. Like we want to build a house out of hempcrete. And I really think it was like yeah. William Randolph Hearst, which is like the big irony of Hearst papers taking over Rodale's. I just can't even believe that Rodale's sold out to Hearst. It's still like, I'm not quite like, I was just researching that yesterday. Like, how did that happen? <laughs> anyway, we're a little off topic here, but I'm, it's something I'm kind of passionate about because like I was talking to this one guy and I'm like, you've been doing this for four years. I've been like waiting to grow hemp since 1993 when somebody handed me a, a ball of hemp twine. Like, like I learned how to sew on my treadle and like we've made like overalls and really nice shirts and paper and journals and just... I think we had like 52 products we made out of hemp that we had to import from other countries. Sure. Um, anyway, uh, back yeah, to... Back to native plants. Yeah. <laughs> so do, are you ready to do like the getting to the root of things part, which is kind of like my lightning round where I go through like the favorite things, or is there anything else you wanted to talk about before we get there? Oh, there's endless, endless topics we could talk about. Um, and let's talk about a little bit about roots. Oh, if you're great. looking at prairie, prairie plants in particular, uh, about, on average, two-thirds of the living plant material or biomass of your average prairie grass or flower resides underground. You only see about one-third of it above ground. Some plants have as much as 80 or 85% of their living plant matter underground in their roots. So... They have extraordinary, many of them have very deep roots. Uh, the grasses in general have roots, uh, depending on the species, from one to eight feet deep. 
And then some of the flowers will go 10, 12, 15 feet deep or deeper. And so they encompass, they really wrap themselves around the soil, hold it in place, preventing erosion. And the average grass plant loses one third of its roots at the end of the growing season every year. And what happens to those roots? They turn into organic matter. And so the prairie and grasslands in general around the world are associated with the highest quality agricultural soils because of all the organic matter that, was, that has accumulated over thousands and thousands of years in those ecosystems. Well, what happened to the American prairie, it is now one of the rarest ecosystems in the world because it had such tremendous agricultural value. It was plowed under relentlessly for economics and converted to wheat, and corn, and hay, and soybeans. So very, very little of the North American prairie escaped the plow, which is why it's so rare. But for people that are looking to rebuild the soil and restore the earth, prairie flowers and grasses are one of the best things that you can plant to help hold the soil, encourage infiltration of water into the, into the water table, to restore the nutrient level, and just to create really high-quality habitat. And here's another interesting point, and I don't have factual data to support this, but if you look at the eco- ecological structure of the grassland, like the prairie, versus a forest, there's about a 50-50 split between the above-ground vegetation and a forest community in the, the tree trunks, leaves, branches, etc., and the roots, depending on the forest type and the species of trees. In the prairie, you've got about two-thirds underground and one-third above ground, and you have this never-ending incorporation of organic matter deep into the soil. And most forests, the herbaceous vegetation, is only a, the roots are only a foot or two deep. You don't get the depth of rooting. And forest soils, if you look at them, have relatively thin layers of topsoil compared to prairies. So you're having this massive amount of incorporation of organic matter into the soil over time in prairies. So in theory, prairies, because of the, the incorporation and basically the deposition or suspension of organic matter in the soil are more adept at taking carbon dioxide out of the air than forests. So everybody's out there planting trees to reduce carbon dioxide levels in an effort to reduce global warming. But in actuality, if you look at the ecology of a grassland system with deep-rooted plants that are constantly adding organic matter, i.e. carbon, into the soil every year, prairies theoretically will take more carbon dioxide out of the system and suspend it, keep it to basically keep it in the soil so it's not going back into the air. And organic matter that decomposes at the surface is invariably converted into other forms of carbon, including carbon dioxide. But when it's in the soil, it turns into organic matter and is not released as carbon dioxide, except very slowly by soil microorganisms. Can I ask you a question about golf courses? Sure. Uh, cause you, cause didn't it say that you worked on golf courses? Like, mm-hmm. because how would somebody like, if they live near a golf course, approach the golf course people about getting them to take on some of these practices? You know, golf courses have, have changed drastically in the last 30 years since I started working with them because they used to be the classic ecological desert. And when you're looking at maintaining fairways and greens and tees and bent grass, they are so high maintenance and there's a tremendous amount of irrigation, fertilization, and pesticide application in them. But what more and more golf courses have decided to do 
is to convert their roughs from cool season non-native grasses into native plantings like prairies. And we've worked with a number of golf courses over the years that have done exactly that. And it creates a whole new effect, a whole new experience for the golfers. And it can be a little more frustrating for those of us who are really bad golfers and are constantly hitting into the rough because you'll never find your ball in the prairie, especially later in the season. So, but it, it creates actually high quality habitat on a golf course, which seems like an oxymoron, but we've seen tremendous uptick in the last 20 years in golf courses that really want to do something good and create an ecological value on their properties. Not all, but many. And so there's tremendous opportunity here for golf courses to participate in restoring the earth on their non-playing surfaces, like in the rough. Hmm. It also saves them money. Saves them money on maintenance, too. So there's the there's that fourth E, economics. Let's save some money. Uh, and they do okay? Like the, like, you know, life, the ecosystem, like the butterflies and the bugs and the things that are in the rough don't, like, aren't hurt from all the pesticides that they're spraying on the golf course. That's good to know, right? No. Yeah. Well, you know, I, well, I can't say that there's not some collateral damage when they're spraying the fairways and such, but, and it's not like, you know, the question here is then are you creating a death trap by having high quality habitat next to an area where you're applying pesticides, but more and more golf courses are also using integrated pest management. So they don't have to spray this stuff. And remember their customers are demanding this too. Like, I don't want to go out there and have all these chemicals while I'm playing golf. I'm touching that grass. Okay, so you're seeing you're seeing you're seeing the real change. I'm not saying this is universal, but you're seeing a new sensitivity. You're seeing a new sensitivity, and you know the golf industry has declined 20 percent over the last what 10 years, I think. Although the recent win by Tiger Woods, everybody's saying that golf will now be ascendant because of that, and it's probably true because <laughs> such, he's such an attraction. Oh, they can they they have tracked. I don't know if you read this article in the New York Times uh, Monday about the correlation between the interest in golf and the career of Tiger Woods. And with the demise of Tiger Woods, after all the scandals in 2009, uh, golf has dropped off a cliff. Like that's really 20% like in the last 10 years. And now everybody's all excited about it again. And so you might see an uptick in, in golf activity. But uh, the fact of the matter is that as society changes, the institutions have to change and people are becoming increasingly concerned about their safety and, and chemicals in the environment. Although you would not know that when you look at how many people still have lawns on their homes, and this is the default landscape, and this is the true travesty of the American landscape. We have a tremendous opportunity to restore the planet in our suburbs because the suburbs are now accounting for an increasing percentage of the land mass cover in North America and, and around the world. Well, let's just look at the United States. You have a huge millions of acres that are devoted to people's homes. Well, what if we took just half of the lawn area and converted those into native trees, shrubs, and prairies? The habitat we would create would be millions of acres of habitat. And you would get rid of those pesticides, fertilizers, etc. And now you would have homes for pollinators, birds, all sorts of critters. And that, to me, this is the real frontier of where we can all have an impact and work together to improve the planet. And when everybody says, well, I'm just one person. I can't do anything. Nonsense. You can do something on your property, even if you have a half an acre or a quarter of an acre. A friend of mine used to live in downtown Minneapolis, and he planted a very small native garden with some native shrubs, native flowers, and he had the most amazing bird and butterfly list you ever wanted to see in your life because the critters found his garden. 
in the urban wilderness of, of downtown Minneapolis. So in the suburbs, if more and more people did this, you get a critical mass of habitat, of native trees, native shrubs, native flowers, native grasses. You get this critical mass that starts to really support some, some life. And if everybody did that across the country, we would see a sea change in the health of our planet, just in, at least in our, in our country. So one person in combination with the neighbors and the rest of our society can indeed have a huge, huge impact. And you know what that would also save is a lot of people's taxes because since it's easier to maintain like all those areas in your town where your townspeople are doing all that maintenance, um, it would reduce that amount of work. I know, how about another question? Like, cause a big thing about people wanting wands is they want to be able to play soccer with their kids or like the kids to play tag or like, like I know in my mom's town, there's like a big push to make their athletic fields be chemical free where the kids are playing. And like, do you have any like comments about that, about like grasses that are good for like, if somebody wants a yard to play kickball with their kids on and stuff like that? Well, I'm not a turf expert, so I wouldn't, I wouldn't really be able to give you much insight on that. I'm I'm more of a native plant geek. I'm not much of a turf expert. So we do have a product called our normal, normal lawn mix, which is, six different fine fescues, which are slow growing. They grow without fertilization in almost every situation. They're very drought tolerant. So it's a really great alternative for high maintenance lawn, but it's not an athletic turf. So you always want to make sure you select the proper turf grass for the proper application and the proper soil conditions and light conditions. But uh, I think it's great that people are saying, hey, we don't want to use all these chemicals where our kids are playing. And, you know, I look at this, I see these people that come from these quote-unquote lawn care companies and the guy spraying the chemicals are in these big moon suits now that doesn't that tell you something right there and they're spraying your lawn where your kids play and your pets pets go not to mention all the other birds and things well i mean that's crazy it's just crazy i don't get it it's just right there in your face like okay this is toxic hey we're putting it on your lawn uh, have a good day have a nice day I know, because, like, I'm, like, like I went to my mom's last June, and I was just, like, looking at all these stupid little yellow flags her neighbors have up that say, don't walk here for 24 hours. And I'm, like, what happens after the 24 hours? It's gone down into the system. And then they're having this big water problem in her town. I'm, like, why are you surprised that your water's contaminated when, like, every other <laughs> curb on the block, which my mom hates them, too. She tries to talk to her neighbors and be, like, you don't need to spray this stuff, but they just don't listen that's what i loved about aj's thing is like he's like well just tell them to spray molasses you know mix some molasses with some water spray that they're gonna see it and like when he posts his pictures on facebook and you can see the results besides it's just like a no-brainer and i think what's great about what you're saying is that a lot of my listeners are interested in like starting green businesses and maybe some of them like i'll bet their minds are turning like this could be the um you know, what I watched on the news on Democracy Now! this morning was like they made this little video about Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and the Green New Deal. And like, it's like her imagining, like her her trip when she got elected, she takes like the, you know, Amtrak from New York down to Washington, D.C. And then it goes into the future in 2028 when they've like implemented the Green New Deal. And she's taking her high speed bullet train that runs on like solar energy or whatever down there are just that mm-hmm. faster, more economic. And I think people are probably visioning, um, you know, 
how you started your business back in the eighties when there was a recession and maybe they'll think about starting like some prairie teaching people how, how teaching their neighbors, how to incorporate native. Cause I think a lot of it would just be like doing that research and like then helping your neighbors see how they can do it too. Like just, I don't know. I'm a teacher. So education is always key to me. Sure. Um, but you're probably that's, like getting ready to get off the phone. So do you want to do the getting to the root of things part? Sarah, let's go to the root of things part. You bet. Okay. Let me let me just say one thing I want to think. Sure. Our business, we don't we we basically don't advertise. We you know we we do a little bit of search on the on the web. Our business has grown almost exclusively by word of mouth, by neighbors seeing people's beautiful landscapes of native plants, and they say, "Where did you get that?" And they say, "Oh, I got it at Prairie Nursery," and that's primarily how our business has grown. And that's exactly what you're saying is through education and exposure. People see an alternative. And it's not, we don't go out and tell people what they shouldn't do. We just set an example of here's an alternative that's better. Here's something you can do. So rather than be scolds and say, you can't do that anymore, we say, hey, we have a better alternative. And you're going you're gonna to like it better than what you've got now. And that's where our new customers come from, from people that say, hey, this is really beautiful. This is really cool. Look, I plant these native plants. I don't just get the beautiful flowers and grasses. I get butterflies and birds. Wow, this is great. And I think that's that's the way to the future. And I think when you're looking at any social change event, you've got to have a better alternative. And that's how you promote that. And so you got to be positive and you got to go out and tell people, hey, I got something better. Try it. And the place to the whole Green New Deal, a whole revamping of the way we deal with our resource base living lower on the food chain and just making a more sustainable planet and integrating ourselves into nature more effectively and with less damage. Well, that's what my husband says all the time too. Okay, Neil, how about your least favorite activity to do in the garden? Like, is there something you got to force yourself to get out there and do in your landscape? <laughs> well, because we have an organic vegetable garden, I hate picking Colorado potato beetles off the potatoes and eggplants. It drives me nuts, and I squish them between my thumb and forefinger, and it's really yucky and squishy, And but it's somehow strangely rewarding. But that's my least favorite thing. Picking Colorado potato beetles and killing them. Interesting. Well, on the flip side, what is your favorite garden activity? Um, my favorite garden activity is burning my prairies in spring. And prairies evolved under the influence of fire. And largely do the activities of Native Americans who manage prairies as an economic uh, benefit for hunting. <laughs> so prairies support large ungulates like bison and elk, whereas in the forest you don't get large hunks of meat. You get squirrels and birds and stuff like that. So if you if your economy is based on mostly hunting, gathering, etc., you want big slabs of meat. So by burning the forest down and promoting the growth of prairie, Native Americans were able to increase their food supply. So that explains why prairies don't just exist in states where it's really hot and dry, like Kansas and Nebraska, but they extend it all the way into Illinois, Iowa, Missouri, uh, Wisconsin, Ohio, Indiana, uh, even into all the way to New York and Connecticut. So burning the prairie is a really important factor in maintaining the prairie because it prevents the invasion of woody plants and burns them back to the ground or kills them. And it also helps to control cool season non-native weeds, like in our area, in the upper Midwest, quackgrass, smooth bone grass, Kentucky bluegrass, 
Kentucky bluegrass was a weed in the prairie. And red clover and white clover, which are great in the agricultural situation, but they are really a problematic weed in our prairie. So we wait until those plants green up in the spring, and then usually we sometime in late April and, and burn our prairies. This helps to control the invasion of woody plants and basis. And it's really fun. And I've never lost a fire yet, and I've been doing this 40 years, so knock on wood, hope I never do it. Do you want to just quickly explain? I know, but maybe listeners don't know why in the world would you burn something, like because it adds nitrogen to the soil, right? Um, not really. Most of the nitrogen is actually volatilized. There's a small addition of potassium and phosphorus to the soil following burning. But it's really, uh, it's other, other reasons than just controlling, the, uh, reducing invasion of unwanted uh, woody plants, native or non-native and controlling cool season weeds. The other factor is that most, not all, but most of the prairie flowers and grasses are what we call warm season plants. They don't initiate growth in spring until the soil warms up usually into the 70s or 80s. Whereas a lot of your cool season non-native plants, the weedy plants, are cool season. They start growth four to six weeks before the prairie plants. So by waiting until just before the prairie plants come up or just as they're coming up to burn, you knock back the cool season weeds because they're already four, five, six inches tall. So you now deprive them of their new spring growth, which they had to generate from their re- their re- root reserves, from their stored energy. So now they have to regrow with less energy remaining in their roots. And now the soil is black. And the beauty of black soil is that it absorbs the heat of the sun and the re- temperature in the soil increases dramatically. Studies that I did back when I was in college, we burned some prairies uh, on May 1st. This was up in Green Bay, Wisconsin. And four days later, the top inch of that soil on the burned area was 18 degrees Fahrenheit, Fahrenheit hotter than the unburned prairie, which still had all the cover on it. 18 degrees in four days, four sunny days. That then stimulated the growth of the prairie flowers and grasses to the disadvantage of the cool season weeds, which don't grow as rapidly under higher soil temperatures. So it's a very specific process that we use to favor the native prairie plants because they evolved under these conditions of fire. So it's very beneficial. Now, a lot of people think, oh, my God, it's so destructive. You're, you're burning down the ecosystem. But actually, you're not. It's very favorable for prairies because that is the management tool for making sure that they do well, prosper, and keeping woody plants out. In fact, if you look around the world, almost every ecosystem experiences sequences of fire at some point of their existence. Um, when Yellowstone burned in 1988, I'm cheering it because this is a great, finally, Finally, natural processes are, are taking place. And the lodgepole pine forests usually burn on a 50 to 100-year cycle. Well, this cycle has been suppressed for so long. So when it went, it was really big. So people are mourning Yellowstone. But what it did was, by burning down the pines, it opened up the grasslands. And they had this explosion of wildlife, that, like bison and elk and other, other grazers. So it's actually very beneficial from a total ecosystem standpoint. The redwoods in Colorado, if not burned, the Douglas fir will often compete heavily with them. You go and see a redwood forest that is burned. It looks terrible the first year, but the redwoods have this six to 12 inch thick bark and they just regenerate new limbs after the fire and they survive it in most cases. So even these huge forests are in some way, at least to the, in the redwood, they are benefited by the fire because it removes the Douglas fir, which are killed by the fire, removing the competition for the redwoods. Not good for the Douglas fir, but great for the redwoods. So you have fire occurring in ecosystems all around the world, sequentially in the prairie, maybe every few years or every other year, depending on the situation. But in forest, maybe 50 years, maybe 100 years, maybe 1,000 years they burn, but they almost invariably do burn. And we're finding out that 
hey, you know, maybe you shouldn't put your plant your house in that large pole pine forest, like outside of Colorado Springs, where they have all these fires, and now parts of California, of course, planting uh, the people putting their houses in the chaparral. And had they burned the grasslands in Cal- in California on a regular basis, the chaparral would not have grown up to the levels of the fuel loading that they have. And the fires would not have been disastrous. It could have been controllable. But people don't pay attention to that. They don't look at the ecology of the landscape, and then they pay the price. Yeah, I feel a lot of that. How like if they would have been paying more attention, for sure, that could a lot of that could have been prevented. Um, But my brother said very similar things like that. That Californians that they had their houses in the wrong spots. Um. What's the best gardening advice you've ever received, Neil? <laughs> well, Bob Smith, may he rest in peace, who started Prairie Nursery just because he wanted to grow the wildflowers that grew along the side of the road in central Wisconsin. When I took over the nursery farm 37 years ago, I was debating what to do with a certain... I mean, this is just I had a few rows of plants. It wasn't even a half an acre. It was a nothing nursery. And he said, Neil... You got to be ruthless. When it's time to make a change, you got to move forward. So take out the old beds and put in new beds. You got to be ruthless. So that was his advice to me, and he's absolutely right. There's a time and place for everything, and when the utility of something goes beyond its utility, then it's time to swap it out and put something new in. You can't get too too emotionally attached when you're running the nursery. He's like the uh, original what's her name Marie Kondo of the gardening community of America <laughs> like 20 years late say thank you and move on I've been like well, sparking I, joy I, all over my house this spring I'm on the massive Marie Kondo magical art of tidying it's working really well well every time I, I touch the plants they bring me joy but uh, sometimes there's just not enough of a left in that bed to bring enough joy so it's time to, to kind of convert it over to the next bed yeah uh, how about your favorite tool? If you had to move and you could only take one tool with you, what could you not live without? I'd bring my drip torch. And most people probably do not know what a drip torch is. But it's a canister with a long uh, tube on it and then a pad at the end. And you fill that canister with 80% diesel fuel and 20% gasoline. And that is your fuel for starting prairie fires. And it goes down, you, you tip it. And the fuel goes down the tube to the can- to the pad, which where you have a, a fire, a little pad that you can light, and you use that for spreading the fire. And it's really efficient. In the old days, we used to use rakes, and we would drag grass on our flaming rakes, and you burn the wooden handle off the rake. It was stupid. But a drip torch, that's what the professional pyromaniac uses for, for burning prairies. Can't live without it. <laughs> Using a rake? That sounds scary. A drip torch. Okay, sounds good. How about... Do you have, like, a favorite recipe to eat from the garden? <laughs> no, I don't have. There's too many favorites. Although, I will tell you, we grew some incredible butternut squash last year. And and I dumped the compost into the hole. I dug these big holes and just, I got this compost pile. And when I was rotating to our second compost pile, I said, I got extra compost this year. So I just threw like gallons of compost in each butternut squash hole. And oh my God, we had butternut squash, butternut squash, butternut squash. And I gave so much away to our friends and we've been cooking butternut squash. Uh, this weekend, we're going to cook our last butternut squash and they're starting to get that stage where they're not, they don't keep anymore. So, but I mean, there's so many wonderful things. Chipotle peppers. 
Okay. I grow lots of jalapenos and I smoke my own chipotles on my Weber grills. We're using Oakwood, Burr Oakwood, and, which is, of course, an all-weekend endeavor where you start them on Saturday morning and you're done by Sunday evening. But making my own chipotle peppers and then creating, uh, putting them in adobo sauce and then we give those away as Christmas presents and people just clamor for them. So oh, yeah, those are a couple of my favorites. Mm, yum. I was going to ask, what do you do with the squash? But I'm good with the chipotle recipe. Oh, with squash. Unless you have like, oh, something super God. cool to square, share. You do? Well, you know, for some reason, butternut squash, maple syrup, and yes, every once in a while, I eat bacon. There's this great recipe for butternut squash, bacon, and maple syrup. And um, I think there's a little garlic in there, too, or onion. Oh, my God, it's tremendous. But we don't eat bacon very often, but every once in a while, we have a treat, put a little bit of the butternut squash. Mm-hmm. And then butternuts. Uh, it's great. Curry butternut soup. Totally, totally uh, a vegan curry butternut soup. Don't put any milk in it. It's rich enough as it is. Love that. Uh, all sorts of stuff you can do with those butternuts. I just bought um, a can, a couple of cans of coconut milk yesterday because I remember my mom making a delicious coconut curry squash mm, yeah. this fall and I was like mm. they were on sale because I don't usually buy it but I couldn't resist how about an internet resource I know you talked about a couple before did we catch them all because you sent me a nice little list here oh yes there's a, there's a lot of good ones out there I, I mean I can't even scratch the surface um, um, I think I mentioned Illinois wildflowers for people in the Midwest uh, Missouri Botanic Garden has a really good site on native plants. A lot of people use the National Wildflower Research Center out of Austin, Texas, which is the Lady Bird Johnson Wildflower Center. They have a lot of good information. And if you're really a plant nerd, you can find out a lot of really interesting information on a website called www.bonap.org, B-O-N-A-P. It's called the Biota of North America Project, run by John Cartes, and he has compiled the distributions from all the herbarium records across the country for where the every native plant and non-native plant and weed occurs in every county in the United States. So it's an amazing resource. resource. But uh, check your local state resources. Uh, most, most states have really good Native plant resources, whether they're through a university or through a Native plant society. And a lot of the state Native plant societies do wonderful, wonderful things and have great conferences. We have a group up here in, uh, well, it's actually a national group, but it started in Wisconsin called the Wild Ones. And they are Wild Ones natural landscapers, and they focus on using Native plants in sustainable ecosystems, sustainable landscapes, uh, minimizing the use of chemicals, herbicides, etc. So a wonderful group. Ooh, those are great resources. You've just been dropping golden seeds like crazy uh, today. So, I, uh, like, we've talked a lot about business, but do you just want to, like, because I have such, a lot of my listeners are interested in, like, becoming, like, creating green jobs or creating a business that they can do either part-time or full-time. Like, not everybody wants to be a market farmer and, like, this might be, like, do you have any business advice for anybody on how to get started? <laughs> Don't do what I did. I didn't have, I didn't have a clue. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I, 
our mo- our motto was we got no business being in business because we know nothing about business. So I'm a plant nerd. You know, my degree is in environmental sciences, but I knew that I had to be independent. I, I needed to have my own direction. I was strongly motivated. There was nobody, there were very few people out there that were promoting native plants. Like this little nursery called Prairie Nursery that Bob Smith started. It was, like I say, not even a half an acre. There were a few other small native nurseries around, but nobody was really promoting it. And uh, there were universities that have Arborita where they had native planting, which are great, but it wasn't really seeping into the society. So I wanted to really take it mainstream. And I thought, well, maybe I can do that in a business by selling people plants and seeds and providing them with the information on how to do this. So, I mean, I was clueless and really struggled because I didn't understand business at all, but gradually you'll learn. And so like every day is a final exam. So you got to learn marketing and you got to learn employee relations and you got to learn finance and you got to learn all kinds of stuff. Taxes just never end. So you're like in graduate school for the rest of your life, constantly learning stuff. And then you're doing every day as a job interview because you might talk to five, 10 customers and it's basically like an interview to have what I need. Um, make sure you match up the products and services that's best for the customer. But I would say after 37 years, the conclusions I came to is Number one, you need to produce an excellent product. You have to have a product that you can be proud of and you can stand behind. That's the bottom line. If you don't have an excellent product, don't even bother. Go home. And then you need to provide excellent customer service. And nobody's perfect. Mistakes happen. When a mistake happens, fix it. And fix it right and make the customer happy. Because without the customer, you're nothing. The customer writes your paycheck. Take care of your customers. And treat them fairly. And treat them like they're your friends family. And I have two sets of customers, and this is just basic business advice. This is nothing, you know, fantastic. I have the customers that buy from me and my other customers are my employees. And I really try hard to, to treat all my employees with respect, no matter what their position, because you know what? Without the person with the lowest job description in your company, if they're not there, you're nothing. You're nothing without those people. So my job is to facilitate my managers with resources to make their jobs as easy as possible and provide them with what they need to make their jobs work best. And I try to pay people as much as I can possibly afford. You know, the nursery business is not a real high profit business. You don't go into this business to get rich. So, you know, like I I tell people, I didn't go into this business to make money and I've been very successful in that regard, but um, it's for love. And if you love what you do, Hey, you know, this is the old saw. If you love what you do, you never, you never, you never work a day in your life because you're doing what you love. So trying to carry people to the best of your ability. And then I will tell you, um, the internet, you've got to maintain your presence on the internet. When I, I thank my lucky stars every day I get up in the morning. When I started in business in 1982, we were a mail order nursery and you went to the post office box and you got the letters with the mail orders in them. That's how the orders came in on a piece of paper. And then in the 80s and 90s, it transitioned to 800 numbers. And then starting in about 2000, it began to transition to the internet. Today, about 85% of our orders come in on the internet. I have half the office staff answering the phone today as I did 15 years ago because it's all coming on the internet. It's super efficient and it's the only way you're gonna find your customers. So cannot overstress it. I think it's pretty obvious today. But if you don't have a good web presence, it's going to be tough road to hoe. 
So, um, and I think more, most importantly of all is never lose track of the values and the reasons why you went into business in the first place. Keep true to your values, keep true to the dream, and never lose sight of that because that what sustains you every day and make sure that the people in your organization understand this and share that. And I'm so fortunate that I have a wonderful group of people. Everybody's drinking the Kool-Aid. They're into the whole program here, the whole reason why we exist. And we're here to help people restore their little piece of the earth for future generations so they can have a better planet. Uh, well, we're at my final question. So, Neil, if you could, if there's one change you would like to see to create a greener world, what would it be? For example, is there a charity organization you're passionate about or project you'd like to see put into action? Like, what do you feel is the most crucial issue facing our planet in regards to the environment, either locally, nationally, or on a global scale? And a lot of your whole business, I mean, really answers this question, but I know you wrote something. Well, you know, there's so many great charities, and I try to give as, to as many as I can, but I mean, it's endless. And that always certainly helps. But the real bottom line here is that human beings have to come to the realization that we are just one species among many. And we have this notion that we are the superior species and the earth was given to us for our exploitation. And as long as we follow that credo, we will continue to despoil the earth at our own risk. And we can isolate ourselves and insulate ourselves from the collapse to some degree. Although people in some parts of the world are feeling that collapse and the effects of global warming already. But wealthy people and wealthy nations, especially in northern climates, can forestall this for some time. But eventually, it will catch up to us. But it all comes back to this whole mindset that the earth is here for people. And that's not the case. And if you look at the concept and the religion of Native Americans in North America, they realized that they are just part of the whole. But the Eurocentric culture that came to our country and tends to dominate the world now, for the most part, has had more of a, this is ours, let's take it. Until we get over that, we're going to continue to ruin the planet at our own risk. And I like to tell people, homo sapiens merely await the deployment with the sediments. There is no rational reason for us to hasten this process. We need to take care of our mother, and maybe we'll stick around for a few more generations or millennia. But that's the bottom line. We have to completely revamp our relationship with the planet and all the other inhabitants on this planet, all other species, and realize they have equal value to us. Because without them, we're dead. Neil, that was awesome. And thank you so much for sharing all of this today. Can you believe when we first started talking, I was like, are we going to make it to 50 minutes? And now we're at an hour and 17 minutes. And just, you were so <laughs> like, just, I know my listeners are going to love this. And just um, really quickly, you want to tell them how to connect with you? Where do they find your website and all that kind of thing? Oh, Facebook sure. Page? Yeah. Yeah. You can go to our website at www.prairienursery.com. That's P R. A-I-R-I-E-N-U-R-S-E-R-Y.com, prairienursery.com. Or if you don't have access to a computer, you can call us at 1-800-476-9453. That's 1-800-GROW-WILD. 
1-800-476-9453. So we'd love to hear from you, and hopefully you'll find some information on our website that's useful to you, and maybe you'll even find a plant or some seeds that you'd like to, to grow. Awesome. Thank you so much for sharing with us today, Neil. You have a wonderful afternoon. Jackie, thank you so much for putting me on your show. It's been a pleasure. I really love it. Aw, thanks. Get your copy of the Organic Oasis Guidebook available today from Amazon for just $26.95. And it's got 12 lessons designed to help you create your own Organic Oasis um, it starts with healthy soil. It talks about building an earth-friendly landscape. It helps you understand the difference between annuals and perennials and how to bring in beneficial insects. It talks about fruit trees and just um, all the lessons that I've learned on my podcast mixed with what Mike and I have done here. Okay, what Mike has done here at Mike's Green Garden and just um, I hope that it will help you on your garden journey uh, to create, like I said, your own organic oasis um, where you can have healthy food and enjoy, um, you know, a very special place. And most of all, it's good for Mother Earth. Do you know someone who would benefit from the Organic Gardener podcast? If you like what you hear, we'd love it if you'd share the Organic Gardener podcast with a friend. Thanks again for listening. And remember, grow local.